Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Uh, now, if you're listening to this in real time as it comes out, it's almost Christmas. If you're not, it was almost Christmas. And uh, so we decided, you know, we would like take it easy. And instead of having like this whole complex thought out plan for which case we were going to do today, we decided to pick one at random from Kat's Ladybird book of serial killers. Which Yes, that is a real thing. It is. It's a, it's a real thing. Uh, and in I mean, du- it's not from Ladybird, but it's essentially the same thing. It's the same idea. It's fine. Uh, so in doing so, we managed to come up with someone that we hadn't actually heard of before. Um, and so that was lucky. <laughs> and uh, it was a man whose crimes spanned 13 years across eight countries, two continents, and involved everything from vehicle theft and armed robbery to identity theft, smuggling, and murder. Got the whole smorgasbord there. There's even a Charles Manson-style family cult, dual theft, crazy prison swap story that sounds like something out of a Hollywood film, <laughs> Yeah, and not one, but four, yes, four prison breaks. I feel like that's too many. I mean, that's just greedy. Yeah. Most people don't even get one. Yeah, right? And we're quite lucky because there's actually a BBC Netflix co-production series coming out in a couple of weeks about this particular criminal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Ladybird book does deliver sometimes. (laughs) This week, we are talking about the serpent, the bikini killer, the hippie trail killer, Charles Sobrage. Charles Sobrage was born, please forgive me, this will not be pronounced correctly, Hachand Baunani Gurumuk Charles Sobrage, something like that, um, on the 6th of April 1944 in Saigon, French Indochina. He was the son of an Indian businessman and Vietnamese shop worker. Now, if you're up on your French Empire history, which I don't know that that many people are these days, but... Well, we're we're not. No. We're just... No, definitely not. Just uh, know how Google works. Yeah. Um, So you might know that Saigon is the old name for Ho Chi Minh City, which is the most populous city in Vietnam. Um, The French Indochina Union, or the Indochinese Federation, was the name for a number of countries and states in southeastern Asia, which had been colonized by the French, which included Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and parts of China. Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos became independent following the Geneva Conference in 1954, which produced the Geneva Agreements that were signed by France and North Vietnam, but rejected by South Vietnam and the U.S. A year later, the Vietnam War began, and we do not have time to get into that one at all. No. But all of this is to say that Charles Sobrage was born at a time of real upheaval in the region yeah 
Not only was he grown up at a time of war and violence, but his parents also divorced when he was young, about two years old, and his father abandoned the family. Sobraj's mother went on to marry a French army lieutenant who was stationed in French Indochina, and he would eventually adopt young Charles. And the family moved a lot between France and Vietnam, and Charles was actually passed back and forth a lot between his parents, so he never really had a stable childhood. And what's also quite interesting is that at one point he was technically classed as stateless, so he had no nationality. He wasn't Vietnamese, he wasn't Indian, and he wasn't French. And this was until he was adopted by his stepfather, and they all eventually gained French citizenship. We don't know a great deal about his childhood. We know that, I would say, he was passed around back and forth quite a bit. He was neglected emotionally in favour of his younger half-siblings on both sides. Both his parents remarried. And neither of his parents really wanted him. He acted out a lot, which is no surprise. That's how what happens when kids are neglected and they want attention. They act out. Mm-hmm. Some act out because of little shits, but some also do act out because they want attention because they are constantly being rejected. Yeah. But neither of his parents really knew how to deal with him or what to do with him when he did act out. And the answer just seemed to be to send him back to the other parent. Probably not helping matters a lot. No. <laughs> um, so for most serial killers, there's usually some sort of like sexual motivation or trigger for their crimes. Uh, sort of you see in the case of like Andre Chikatilo, he could only feel arousal while dominating someone much smaller and weaker than him. Or Dennis Nelson, who killed people so that they could never leave him. We've covered both of those lovely chaps um, uh, in prior episodes. So if you want to get more into that, you can go listen to those. Um, but Sobraj's MO is more closely related to another um, serial killer case or cases that we covered, uh, the senior citizen serial killers, Ray and Faye Copeland. Um, And their primary motivation was financial gain. And the whole murder part of it was them just sort of cleaning up the mess they made in order to make money. So this is more similar to that than your sort of, I guess, more traditional serial killers. Yeah, like your 70s golden age yeah. serial killer. Your your sexual gratification killers. Yeah. Um, and this is actually quite clear in uh, the first crime that he was convicted of. He started off with petty crimes like burglaries in Paris when he was in his late teens. In 1963, at the age of 19, he was convicted and sentenced to three years in Poissy Prison near Paris. Poissy near Paris. During his sentence, Sobrage befriended a prison volunteer named Félix Descognier, who is described on the interwebs as a wealthy young man. And 
you know, like a lot of wealthy people, instead of doing something meaningful, they just kind of throw their money at something and be like, yay, I helped. <laughs> um, although he did actually go into the prison, whereas a lot of his contemporaries would just donate money, he did actually go in to the prison and worked with the prisoners. And when he was paroled, Sobraj moved in with Felix, we believe in Paris or in the Paris area. And according to Wikipedia, because I couldn't find another source for this, once he was paroled, Sabraj split his time between the high society of Paris and the criminal underworld. One may argue that in a Venn diagram, that is a circle. Yeah, certain certain instances, I could see that definitely <laughs> being the case. You tell I've been in a bitchy mood this week. <laughs> <laughs> She's pulling punches, ladies and gentlemen. For the next few years, Sobraj kept his head down and stayed out of trouble. Or at least he didn't get caught for whatever he was up to. Which was, you know, running in all of these organised crime upper-crust circles. And he was reportedly running a series of small-time scams and burglaries. That was until he was caught in 1969, when he was arrested for evading police whilst driving a stolen car which he was sentenced to eight months in Poissy prison so he's becoming a regular at Poissy apparently yeah um but maybe it's like third like your third stay is free yeah yeah like you get like the you get a little little stamp card yeah like you get the cell with the the extra window or something (laughs) you upgrade your your stay This is my third stay in five years. Can I get a better room? Yeah, all right. I I'm a I'm a gold member here at at the prison, so I think you'll find that I've accumulated enough points that uh, I need an upgrade. Um, I'd like to check. I'd like to exchange my points for a easily bribable prison officer, please, <laughs> a- and a continental breakfast. Thank you and good night. <laughs> um, but. Uh, it turned out that in between all of those scams and, uh, you know, all the running around with rich people with, you know, limited or lack of morals, um, Sobraj had also been doing a fair bit of philandering, as as one does. Uh, and, you know, he was a good con man, so he managed to charm all the rich eligible bachelorettes of Paris. Uh, and in that time, he had entered into a relationship with a young Parisian socialite named Chantal Compagnon, uh, and just hours before he was arrested, he proposed to her. Very romantic. Yeah. Um, now, Chantal stood by him while he was inside, and when he was released on parole a few months later, the couple got married, and in 1970, Sauvage and the now-pregnant Chantal fled France. Uh, Reports say that it was to avoid arrest because he had committed a number of robberies and uh, run several scams, including check fraud. So they fled France in a, quote, borrowed car from Félix Desconnier. So they stole his car and left the country. Uh, The couple traveled overland to India through Eastern Europe and the Middle East. 
They traveled on fake passports and befriended travelers along the way before robbing them and moving along. So it's a, they're, they're just making friends everywhere they go. Yeah. Um, their aim had been to reach Vietnam, where Sobraj's father still lived, uh, and he was hoping that a new baby would endear him to his estranged family. But uh, heavily pregnant Chantal struggled with the journey, and the couple only got as far as India. The couple eventually reached Mumbai quite late in the year, which I believe was still called Bombay at the time. I looked it up. 1995 was the, the name change, so yeah, definitely. I had a feeling it was in our lifetime because I remember hearing it referred to as Bombay yeah. when I was young. So they reached Bombay or Mumbai. Chantal gave birth to a daughter who they named Usha. I want to make a joke about the singer Usher. It's just not coming to me. <laughs> make your own joke. Listeners. Insert joke yeah. here. Uh, the couple settled into the expat community in Mumbai, presenting themselves as respectable upper class people, providing a stable environment for their baby daughter. But Sobraj soon went back to his life of crime because. You know, one needs money to appear rich. I mean, yeah. And his his uh, choice of crime this time was thieving cars and running smuggling operations. His speciality was acquiring luxury European cars for Mumbai's upper classes, who didn't want to deal with all the bureaucracy and red tape that and taxes. That importing expensive European cars generated. Yeah. It wasn't cheap. So, so Braj would buy European cars on the black markets in the Middle East and have them smuggled into India. He would have them stripped down so they're pretty much just a shell and that would leave them worthless. He would report them as stolen to police in Mumbai. So he could then claim on the insurance. So he'd have them insured as soon as he bought them. So he claimed on the insurance. Then when they were found, because they were worthless, he didn't want them back, so they went to the, straight to the police auction. Stripped down, let's like say, absolutely worthless. So, yeah, they sold at auction, but for very little. Mm-hmm. So Braj went along, bid in the client's name. Then, so, so bidding in the client's name meant that they were legally the owners, as far as the police were concerned. He then took the car back to the mechanic who stripped them down. He would then put the cars back together. So now you had the original luxury car, you know, reassembled, some assembly required. Yeah, the Ikea version of the car. (laughs) And the client would be the legal owner without having to go and deal with customs and all of that. I mean, it's complex. It's brilliant. It is. And that really does speak to his his intelligence as well, that he could mastermind that. And do, like, pull it off, not just once, but, like, multiple times. Yeah. Like, that's very impressive. Yeah. So he came up with this whole scam. He was pretty damn good at it. He would charge his clients about £20,000 per car, plus the money claimed uh, from the insurance companies. 
which meant that Sobraj was earning a pretty great living from his criminal activities. But instead of using the proceeds of his crimes to provide for his family, uh, Sobraj instead just just chucked all that money into uh, a newly discovered hobby. He had a, a great fondness for gambling, which isn't great. No. Uh, but does sound like in keeping with his personality. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this sort of happy, settled life and crime life in Mumbai. Mumbai? Mumbai. I know in some Indian religions, the cow is sacred, but they don't name their cities after it. Not quite like that. Uh, In Mumbai, didn't last long, and less than a year later in 1971, the couple fled India, settling in Kabul, Afghanistan. But rather than settle down and get jobs, you know, that old boring thing, um... (laughs) The two of them decided that they would just live it up, live their best lives with an extended stay at the Intercontinental Hotel. Uh, And they racked up quite a bill there, which they would never actually pay. So, you know, it's one way to live in the lap of luxury. Yeah. Um, During this time, Sabraj made plenty of contacts for his latest smuggling venture, which was moving weapons uh, over land from Afghanistan to be sold on the black market in India. Because I think in the 70s there was war going on in parts of India and Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's be real. There's always a black market for weapons, no matter if it's war or peace. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... He was he was working that angle, uh, but he supplemented his, uh, the family's income by once again befriending travelers, mostly Western hippie types, before robbing them of money and valuables. So we have to remember that Afghanistan was a very different place in the early 1970s to how it is now. Yeah. For our generation, we've mostly grown up with the images of the so-called war on terror. And before that, it was the Gulf War in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And before that, in the late 70s, was the Soviet War, or Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But back in the sort of early 70s, it was an integral part of the hippie trail. And it was as much a destination for backpackers as India, Nepal, and Thailand, uh, Syria, Pakistan, Jordan, even Iran and Iraq were also big stops on the hippie trail. The Middle East was a much different place back then to how we think of it now. And there was a constant stream of idealistic young people coming through who, sadly, were the perfect targets for Sobraj. The couple fled Kabul in December 1971 and headed for Rawalpindi in Pakistan. And it was here that Sobraj committed his first murder, uh, according to Crime and Investigation. Sabraj drugged a taxi driver in order to steal their car, but the driver ended up dying from an overdose of whatever substance it was that Sabraj had drugged him, uh, them with. 
Sadly, we don't know the name of the driver or anything about them, just that they died during the time that Sabraj lived in Ralpindi. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it happened in Rawalpindi because he was always moving around and smuggling arms across national borders. So it technically could have happened anywhere. Um, and this person isn't listed on any of list of Sobraj's victims. The only source that we could find mentioning them was a uh, crime and investigation, but they didn't list the driver on the victim list, just sort of in the text and the narrative about Sobraj's life and crimes. Yeah, and that's the only source that I could find reference to to this man's death. And also the only source I could find that said they even lived in Rawalpindi. So mm. uh, according to Crime Investigation, who we did use to try and build a timeline of his story, but you'll see why that gets a bit difficult <laughs> in a bit. Yeah. There were also rumours of Sobraj living in Bangkok at some point in 1972 or 1973 after the family fled Kabul, and that he was running like a touristy souvenir type of shop. The article even alleges that Sobraj would prey on the visitors to his shop, drugging them, robbing them, and sometimes even killing them, usually by them overdosing on whatever he used to drug them. Uh, Much the same as he did with the taxi driver when he lived in Rawalpindi. But again, none of these victims are named or listed anywhere that we can find it's almost just like a passing comment in this article that we found Mm. so again we're not entirely sure if this is fact or the rumor mill yeah going into overdrive because we've talked about it a lot before that when a serial killer is found if they were in an area when other murders were committed people will try and tack them on to the serial killer who's been identified because we don't like the idea of a killer not being found. Yeah, no, absolutely. So maybe, oh, well, he was, you know, in Southeast Asia at this time, so he must have committed every murder on the hippie trail. Yeah, no. Exactly. No, he didn't. No, probably probably not. <laughs> uh, Chantal got sick of this life of crime, constantly moving around, having to look over their shoulders. So in the early 70s, she left Sobraj and returned to her native France with their daughter and filed for divorce. So that's one version of what Charles Sobraj was doing in the early 70s. There's another version. So this is where this stuff kind of gets complicated in terms of timelines and everything, but... Bear with us. Yeah. According to the podcast Serial Killers, in 1971, the couple sent their daughter back to France to live with Chantal's family, and they then fled to Hong Kong on an extended vacation uh, because Sobraj now had a reputation for skipping out on his tab at the casinos around Mumbai. Uh, Conning and scheming their way into Hong Kong's upper classes... Uh, they managed to enjoy the high life. Now, um, Hong Kong is a very short ferry ride from Macau, which was once a Portuguese colony and is well known for its casinos. And wouldn't you know it, gambling addict Sabraj just couldn't resist that siren call across the water, across the bay. 
Uh, and he quickly racked up debts of more than 50,000 pounds, which he couldn't pay because he didn't have a job. Um, and yeah, he tried selling off his wife's expensive jewelry, but that didn't make much of a dent in the bill. So uh, in late 1971, Sabraj got involved with another criminal who was planning a jewel heist at a hotel in Delhi, India. So... As I said, we don't really know which version is true about where the couple went after they fled Mumbai. We know that they spent time in Hong Kong, Macau, Pakistan, Afghanistan, but we're just not entirely sure of what order or how many times they were in each country. But what we do know was that uh, they were back in India in 1971 for the jewel heist at the Ashoka Hotel with a group of other criminals. So this running around to, to Kabul and then Thailand and Hong Kong supposedly only happened in the space of a few months. I mean, they're efficient. Yeah. The hotel, Ashoka Hotel in Delhi, had a jewel store on the first floor, so the group would rent rooms directly above it and when the store closed they tried to drill through the floors and steal the gems it's very simple when you think about yeah. it and so Braj, with all of his smuggling expertise was in charge of moving the stolen jewels out of Delhi but of course something went wrong obviously the, f- <laughs> the floors were made of marble and the drills they brought were no match for such a stone. So after three days and many broken drill bits, Sobraj changed tack. He called the star, under the guise of being a potential customer, asking them to bring a selection of jewels to the hotel room. So, when the shop clerk brought the jewels to the room, Sobraj and the others held him at gunpoint, forced him to take them back to the store, where they stole a case of jewels and $10,000 in cash. Not exactly as seamless an operation as their original plan. Yeah. Like, it's a very different skill set. Yes. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when Sabraj got to the airport, he ran into more trouble. Uh, The jewel shop had obviously reported the robbery, and now they were searching the airport for the culprits. While he was in line waiting to board a plane, the police walked past Sobraj, led by the shop clerk whom they had held at gunpoint. So he just walked out of the airport uh, and left the bag of jewels in the line where he had been standing, and he returned to Mumbai. Back in Mumbai, he quickly went back to a life of crime, and just two weeks later, he was arrested for car theft. And while in custody, he was linked to the armed jewel robbery at the Ashoka Hotel. But Sabraj wasn't interested in just sort of giving in and going to trial, so he hatched a plan to escape. After a few weeks in custody, he faked severe stomach pain and was rushed to the hospital with uh, what doctors believed to be appendicitis. So they operated on him, uh, and then they kept him cuffed to a hospital bed while he recuperated. But because it was a hospital, not a prison or jail, whatever, 
his wife was allowed to visit him, and so she did. And she drugged the guard by slipping chloroform into his drink uh, and then stole the keys to the handcuffs while he was passed out. And then Chantal took Sobraj's place in the hospital bed while he fled. That that part, I don't get. So I think it was, you know, if you were covered up by all the, you know, bedding and everything, you could kind of make it look okay. like... It's like until on, someone, know, someone checks to, yeah. Yeah, and so, until someone comes and checks closely, it would appear that there was someone in the bed, the guard was in there somewhere. Uh-huh. Nobody passing by really had any worry. Yeah. You know, any reason to, to worry. See, that makes more sense than <laughs> what I was picturing, which was like her just sitting up in bed being like, well, there's someone chained to the bed. Aren't you happy with that? No, it's not quite like an Al Capone situation <laughs> where it's like, okay, you can have my wife instead of me. Have my, take my brother, please. <laughs> um, yeah, so she took his place. Um, uh, now, fittingly and appropriately, Chantal was arrested. Uh, for aiding this escape stunt, uh, but she managed to persuade a friend to pay her bail, and when she was released, uh, the, the couple reunited and then went on the run again. Uh, they briefly returned to Europe, where they pulled a number of small-time scams in early 1972, but eventually they headed for uh, Kabul. This version of events seems to kind of link up with the other version that we have, only a few years later. So, the couple stayed in a hotel in Kabul running scams and robbing tourists until Sobraj was arrested in 1973. Although the exact reasons aren't clear. Some say it was for an unpaid hotel bill because they were just living their best lives. Others say it was for some of the scams and robberies that he was running in Kabul. Either way, He was thrown into prison, and there is nothing cushy about Afghani prisons. (laughs) There is a certain resilience that's associated with Afghanistan and its people. Throughout all of history, so many nations have tried to invade and conquer Afghanistan, but none have succeeded in the long run. And in lots of very patronising Western documentaries about it it's kind of chalked up to being this sense of collective resilience and a very unique mindset of afghani people what this then meant for sobraj was that it wasn't quite as easy for him to bribe his way into a comfortable life as he'd been able to do in the indian and french prisons and the guards weren't vulnerable to his charms and cons as others had been and Conditions weren't great either. Yeah. So he realized that to escape from this prison, uh, he was going to have to up the ante. Uh, So Sabraj once again faked an illness in prison, but this time, instead of just saying, hey guys, my stomach hurts, help me, um, he drew his own blood and then drank it so it appeared that he was vomiting blood. Prison guards uh, were worried that he was suffering from a perforated ulcer, so they rushed him to the hospital. 
Once there, he drugged a guard, then broke out of his chains and walked out the front door, where he reunited with Chantal. And the couple once again went on the run, uh, fleeing Afghanistan and eventually traveling west. In late 1973, they returned to France and reunited with their daughter, who would have been about three years old at this point. We should point out that at this point, Sabraj is still only 29. He's literally the same age that we are. I mean, he's a lot more productive than I am, I'll tell you that much. I know, I haven't even had one prison break, let alone two at this point. I haven't smuggled any cars or arms in or out of countries recently. I've, I've never, I've never drugged somebody. No. But like, yeah, no, he's a he's an industrious young criminal, that's for sure. Yeah. Very efficient. Um but like Chantal started to realize this is maybe not for her. Um so when she was reunited with Usha, uh Chantal decided that she wanted a more settled life uh in France as a mother. Instead of being, you know, a constant outlaw living a life of crime with Sabraj. So she filed for divorce and vowed to never see him again. Um, but he didn't really seem to care so much because he was already thinking about who could be his next accomplice. Uh, and although his parents, step-parents, siblings, and now his wife had all vowed to never see him again... There was one family member who he still had a relationship with. That was his younger half-brother, Andre. Andre was eight years younger than Sabraj, and he had always looked up to his older brother, and the two had maintained a correspondence while Sabraj was gallivanting about India and Afghanistan running his various schemes. So, with no other accomplices, or more accurately, no other easy victims for him to use, Sabraj convinced his younger brother, who was about 21, uh, to join him in his latest scam, and, and the two headed to southeastern Europe. It's pretty clear that Sabraj is a stone-cold psychopath who used and abused whoever he needed to to get whatever he wanted, showing no empathy or remorse for who he hurt along the way. But throughout his life, he had also been displaying signs of Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism is the political philosophical belief that the ends justify the means, named for the 15th century Italian diplomat Niccolo Machiavelli, who espoused these ideas. In psychology, Machiavellianism is part of the dark triad the other two sides being psychopathy and narcissism. And the main traits of someone with Machiavellianism are manipulativeness, callousness, along with an inability to recognise emotions in others and a complete lack of empathy. So there is a lot of overlap yeah. between these three elements of the triad. Mm -hmm. It's more of a Venn diagram <laughs> than, a, than a triangle. Yeah. Uh, those with those who display Machiavellian traits are selfish, they have a complete disregard for others and seek to dominate other people to carry out their will for them. 
So Baraj had always manipulated his younger brother to carry out whatever he wanted for him. At the age of 10, he had convinced then two-year-old Andre to steal from a local shop. And when he was caught, Andre, being two years old, dobbed his brother in it. But Sobraj simply shrugged and said at least he knew there was always one person he could control. Yikes. Yeah. Um, so after the brothers reunited following Sobraj and Chantal's divorce, they headed to Istanbul in Turkey. Uh, Sobraj was half Vietnamese, half Indian, and Andre was half Vietnamese and half French. And um, this gave both of the brothers a sort of ambiguous ethnicity, for lack of a better term uh, to call it. But basically, people couldn't really place where they were from, especially since Sabraj was fluent in multiple languages. So they, you know, couldn't even place their accents when they were talking to them. Um, and this ambiguity made it uh, easy for them to appear to be locals pretty much everywhere throughout uh, southeastern Europe, the Middle East, India, and Southeast Asia. So to travelers who were just, you know, passing through uh, Turkey, traveling through Turkey, it was easy for the brothers to appear to be tour guides or just friendly locals willing to help out someone who was lost which in turn made it a lot easier for the brothers to rob the unsuspecting travelers. So we've mentioned it a couple of times already, but we should probably explain exactly what the hippie trail actually is. These days, it tends to refer to parts of Southeast Asia, sort of India, Thailand, Cambodia, Myanmar, Laos, Vietnam, Nepal, sometimes even Bhutan. It is basically a group of countries where white Westerners go on their gap year to find themselves whilst traipsing around temples for religions they don't belong to and building orphanages despite having zero labouring skills. From the late 1940s to the late 1970s, the hippie trail was a bit different (laughs) and it was an actual route from southeastern Europe to southeastern Asia and technically it did start in Cartagena Technically, it started in Istanbul. Not Constantinople. (laughs) Istanbul, not Constantinople. Tourists, sorry, travellers, would come from all over the US and Western Europe, and they would all head to Turkey, where the trail started. From there, they would travel by road, So this is usually hitchhiking or in VW campers. So they mostly would go south to Syria and Jordan and Iraq and then on to Iran. Or they would go east through Turkey and straight into Iran where the routes joined up. Iran led to Afghanistan, then Pakistan and through the famous Khyber Pass, which is a very steep mountain pass. Mm -hmm. And eventually it would go south to Lahore and then into northern India. The trail then splits again in Delhi. Some continued south through India, splitting again for either Goa or Sri Lanka. Some went northeast to Nepal and the temples and stupas of Kathmandu. The final route went east into Bangladesh and then they would travel by boat to Bangkok because they'd have to miss out Myanmar 
which was still a very closed off country at that time. The hippie trail came to a bit of an abrupt end in the late 1970s when war in the Middle East started up again. Revolution in Iran led to it becoming a closed off country and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan meant that that too was a no-go for most Western travellers. The brothers conned travellers in Istanbul, robbing them not just of their money but also of their passports, which allowed Sabraj to pass easily between countries in the region without being detected uh, and then returned to prison in either India or Afghanistan. Some reports say that they had as many as 10 false identities each. Uh, That's just greedy. That's a lot. The police agree. (laughs) And that they would replace the photos in the stolen passports with their own. Uh, Which was much easier to do back then. Yes, definitely. Didn't have biometric passports back then. No, no RFID chips to copy and splice and all kinds of shit. Um... So when things got a little bit sticky for them in Turkey, they traveled to neighboring Greece and continued preying on vulnerable tourists, still able to blend in and appear to be locals. But after two years of conning their way around Turkey and Greece, authorities caught up with the pair and they were arrested in Athens in Greece in 1975 after trying to con an Egyptian businessman. Uh, The businessman went to the police and was able to identify the brothers when he saw them again on the streets of Athens. But, of course, Sabraj wasn't about to give up his life of crime and, you know, serve the time that he he should have for for his ill deeds. Um, No, 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 no. He knew that there would be international warrants out for his recapture and return to prison in India and Afghanistan. Uh, but his brother Andre had no rap sheet, no such warrants. Uh, Sabraj had also studied the legal systems and the reported prison conditions in the various countries he'd committed crimes in. He knew it was only a matter of time before the authorities connected him with the string of robberies and scams in Turkey, and he also knew that Greek prisons were far more comfortable than Turkish prisons. Uh, So he devised a scheme to get both him and Andre out of prison and back onto the hippie trail. Because Andre had no previous convictions, Sobraj knew that he wouldn't get much more than a slap on the wrists, maybe a fine. Either way, he would be released pretty much immediately. Whereas with his rap sheet, he was looking at at least 20 years in Greece and Turkey before being extradited back to India and Afghanistan. So he convinced his younger brother to trade ad- trade identities with him. So Braj claimed he would get released as Andre, then Andre would go to the prison warden and tell them that they had released the wrong brother. And then they would have to release Andre, and so Braj would already be on the run, the brothers would reunite at a prearranged time and place. But of course, this didn't go quite as planned. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, shockingly, indeed, the Greek prison service weren't particularly happy with the brothers trying to play them for fools. So instead of releasing the real Andre, as the brothers had planned, they extradited him straight to Turkey, where he was sentenced to eight 
18 years hard labour. Oops. I think Silvraj knew exactly what would happen. And he just tricked his younger brother. He knew that Andre idolised him and that he could manipulate him into doing whatever he said. And he just saw him as just another mark to con. <sighs> it's not good. Either way. No. Um, so once he was free from the Athenian prison, Subraj just, he just never looked back. Um, this was his third prison escape. And because of this, Subraj earned himself the nickname The Serpent for his ability to slither out of prison and slither out of pretty much any situation that involved him having to take responsibility or face any consequences for his actions or crimes. Uh, he never made any attempt to contact Andre in prison or ever apologize for leaving him to serve 18 years hard labor in Turkey. So I don't know exactly how accurate this is or how well known it is outside of Europe, but Turkey has always had a reputation in Western Europe for its pretty horrendous human rights breaches. Yeah. So they've been trying to join the EU for more than 30 years, but there's still more than 20 criteria that they don't meet, and a lot of that is to do with human rights. So, in my opinion, you have to be a pretty stone-cold psychopath to leave your little brother to face that. Especially when you think that places like Turkey or pretty much anywhere that has like hard labour sentences, especially long ones like 18 years, you weren't expected to walk out at the end of their sentence. You either died or you were broken by the system. Yeah. It's just... It wasn't something that you came out and just put behind you and went on and and made something of your life. Yeah. Uh, so, without a thought for his, his poor brother, um, Sabraj once again headed for the hippie trail, making his way to Thailand. Uh, and he was pulling small-time cons to pay his way along the trail, uh, as well as impersonating tour guides and robbing tourists sabraj also posed as a gem trader and drug dealer to to raise money it was when he got to thailand that he realized that with his brother languishing in a turkish prison he needed a new accomplice someone who would be his loyal doormat uh whom he could manipulate into doing whatever he wanted and that was when he came up with another idea he didn't need just one accomplice. He wanted a whole group of underlings uh, that he could boss around, who could go out and run his scams for him and allow him to keep his hands completely clean. So he decided that he would create his own family. And that's where we're going to stop <laughs> for today. <laughs> um, and we'll pick it up again next week for our final uh, episode of 2020. Uh, and yeah, that's that's uh, that's what what we're getting to so far with this guy. Yeah, it, it's really a crime of two halves. So this is a good a good breaking a good point. Stopping point. Um, with that said, um, if you enjoy this, please. 
give us a rating and uh, review and subscribe to us uh, wherever you listen. Um, and uh, if you want, um, don't forget that you can still get 20% off of our merch, which is on Teespring. And the link will be in the show notes and on social media and on our website. So uh, you can use the code launch, L-A-U-N-C-H, to get 20% off uh, up to Christmas Day 2020. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we will see you next time. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.